So good to be together. Welcome. Would you uh, grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. That's where we're going to be uh, continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been doing now for a couple months, just taking it a chunk at a time. And if you're new here, uh, welcome. So glad that you're with us. And uh, we take time out of our service every week to open up God's Word to study it, to read it together, and to see what God would have to say to us. And so we're going to read the passage to begin here, starting in verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, or there are some Bibles in the seats in front of you. So let me read for us verse 31. It says this, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you speak to us. You have uh, revealed yourself to us through scripture. So thank you that we can read uh, your word this morning and come to know you more. And we, we pray that you would guide us as we seek to understand who you are and apply your word to our lives. We need your help, Lord. Open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear what you'd have for us this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, throughout my life, whenever I have wanted to do something, even the slightest bit risky, which is not very often, I would have to sign or fill out a waiver. You know what I'm talking about? When I would go to summer camp as a kid, when I would go whitewater rafting, when I would join a sports team, there was always a waiver that I or my parents would have to fill out that essentially said what? Here's the risks involved, right? Here's the dangers that might lie ahead. And so if you want to be on board, if you want to go through with this, you got to sign your life away, essentially saying that you are aware. I mean, you guys been there? You can relate with the waivers. Yeah, it seems like nowadays they're everywhere. You have to do it for everything. I mean, to go to Costco on a Saturday, it's like you have to sign a waiver. Like, here's what's ahead. Danger. And so the purpose of these waivers are to say, full disclosure, right? No bait and switch, no surprises. Here's what's coming. Here are the dangers. And you have to accept and sign on the dotted line if you want to go forward with it. Now, the same is true in our spiritual lives with the invitation of Jesus. It comes with a full disclosure, no surprises, here's what's ahead. And we see some of that in the verses that we read this morning. Jesus is not going to bait and switch us. He's not going to lie to us about what following him will look like. He's going to speak very directly and clearly to the disciples and to us this morning. And so we see that going on as we start in verse 31. We already read it, but it says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, he's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now, 
we have to remember the context, right? If you were here last week, you remember at the end of chapter 8, which is where we are, just a few verses beforehand, Peter has this powerful declaration, Jesus, you are the Messiah. This moment of clarity, Jesus, you're the king. You're who everything and what everything is all about, Jesus. And he says, essentially, yes. And in verse 31, he claims himself as the Son of Man. You see him refer to himself that way? The Son of Man must suffer. And essentially, by claiming that title, he's agreeing with what Peter has said, that yes, he is the Messiah. See, the Son of Man was this term that comes from the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, there was this picture of one that was like a Son of Man, this divine King that would come in glory and power and establish the rule and reign of God on earth. And so Jesus is saying, yes, that's me. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. But let me explain to you what that means, Peter and disciples. I'm going to suffer. As the Messiah, I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. We see Peter have this, has this really strong response, right? He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and begins to rebuke him. He rebukes Jesus. He says, no, 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 Jesus, you got it all wrong. Suffering, no. Being rejected, no. Dying, no. What are you talking about, Jesus? That's just negative talk. Get that out of here. And, and the word for rebuke that's used here is the same word that is used elsewhere in the Gospels when Jesus casts out demons. There's exorcisms and demons are rebuked and thrown out of people. I mean, it says that is what Peter is doing to Jesus. He's rebuking him in the strongest possible terms, confronting what Jesus has just said. Now, you don't have to go to seminary or be a religious expert to know that you probably shouldn't rebuke Jesus, right? I mean, that's like, Bible 101 stuff. You don't rebuke Jesus. And yet here we see Peter doing that. Why? Why is this cause such a harsh reaction from Peter? You see, he and the disciples have this picture of what the Messiah was going to look like. They had these expectations of when the King comes, when the Savior comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to conquer. He's going to be strong and victorious and throw off the Romans who are oppressing us. And so that picture did not include suffering or rejection or death at the hands of the Romans. I mean, almost by definition, the Messiah was a conqueror, was one who would come and win, and sure, there were places in the Old Testament, we think of Isaiah 53 that talks about this suffering servant, this servant of the Lord that would come and at some point uh, suffer for the cause of God. But they never connected those images of the suffering servant with the Messiah. So they're saying, no, Jesus, what are you talking about? It was just completely backwards. It made no sense to them. It would be like, imagine this, like someone today running for president, okay? And they're saying, I'm going to be the next president. And the whole crowd's like, yeah. And they're like, we're going to the White House. Yeah, how are you going to do it? We're going to lose the election and be rejected by all the people. Like, what? 
You know, someone's like, hey, we're going to the Super Bowl. Okay, picture the Philadelphia Eagles. We're going to the Super Bowl. Yeah. We're going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Coach, what's our game plan? We're going to let the other team score, and they're going to win the game. What? I mean, really, it makes no sense. It sounds completely backwards. What do you mean the Messiah, the Savior, the, the conquering King is going to die? What, Jesus, what are you talking about? He's like, we got this crowd going. The people love us, Jesus. We're taking the world by storm. Here we go, up and to the right, to the top we go. Jesus says, no. And we see in verse 33, continues, Jesus turned and looked at the disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, no, Peter. And Peter kind of gives us whiplash here. I mean, last week, again, Peter has this powerful moment of clarity and vision. Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus, you're the king. And we're like, right on, Peter. You got it. And then a couple verses later, Jesus is calling him Satan. We're like, Peter, what happened? What a quick turnaround. See, he saw in part, but he didn't see the full picture. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him the ultimate accuser, the ultimate adversary. He calls Peter the one who is standing opposed to the plans and the will of God. And it's not that Peter was literally Satan or that Peter was in some way possessed by Satan. I don't think that's what's happening here. He's just acting like Satan, standing opposed to the plan of God against what God wants to do. And he says as much, he says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're thinking about what you want. Because Peter and the disciples, again, they're concerned about upward mobility. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. He's going up and to the right, and he's going to be in power and influential. And so we're going to, you know, we're his guys. We're his inner circle. And so where he goes, we go. And so we're going to have a place of influence and status and significance and earthly power. This is going to be great. We're going to be at the center of all of this. And it's such a good thing that we no longer struggle with these thoughts the way the disciples did, isn't it? It's a good thing we're past all that, those silly disciples. I think we can see a bit of ourselves in the disciples, if we're honest. It's hard for us today, right, to wrap our heads around a Messiah that dies, the way of the cross, the way of suffering and loss, and what appears to the world as weakness. I mean, we too want a disciple that, con- or excuse me, a Messiah that conquers. We want our lives to be blessed. We want to have power and influence and we want our enemies to be dealt with and we want our agenda to rule the day and our causes whatever they might be we want Jesus to champion them we wrestle just like the disciples do and so we say no thank you to the talk of loss and humility and death and suffering we'll pass on that thank you very much but Jesus says no you guys you're missing it Don't you see? You're not thinking about the plans of God. You're thinking about human 
concerns. And he says twice that the Messiah must suffer or die. You see, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and that he must be killed. In other words, he's saying this is how it has to be. Don't you guys understand that this is the plan of God unfolding, the plan for redemption and salvation for all the world. In order for God to save his people and to bring his kingdom, he has to deal with the problem of sin. Because scripture tells us that the wages of sin, the consequences for sin and our rebellion from God is death and judgment and separation from God. And so God says, I'm going to save my people I'm going to rescue them. But in order to do that, in order to forgive them for their sins, the Son must go to the cross and die in our place and take the punishment for sin upon Himself so that we might be forgiven. He's saying the Messiah must die. There's no other way. And in case we think that the cross is just some tragic accident, You know, some unfortunate event in the first century where this poor, nice, young Jewish rabbi was up and coming and had this following and everyone loved him. And poor guy, his time was just cut short. What a tragedy. No, we see Scripture say this was the plan of God. This is how it was designed to go. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was handed over to death by the deliberate plan of God, that the death of Jesus was no accident. It was exactly what God intended. It may look like weakness to us and foolishness to us and death to us, but it is the way that God redeems, the way that God saves, and the way that God forgives. We see that Jesus doesn't stop there, though. There's more. We keep reading. Verse 34. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so after he rebukes Peter, he he gathers the crowd. He brings the disciples close and says, guys, listen up. I got something very important to tell you in case you think that this is just for me. This whole death in the way of the cross and sacrifice, in case you think that's just the way I'm going, it's like, listen closely. This is the case for anyone that's going to follow me. Anyone that's going to come after me, anyone that wants to be my disciple, this is what's ahead. Sacrifice, loss, the form of, of death, full disclosure. Here's what following me is going to look like. And so we say, wow, Jesus. Talk about a a crowd-pleasing message. Man, I mean, has he not read the most recent leadership books? Has he not read the how to win friends and influence people literature? I mean, is he unaware of what's going to draw a crowd and keep people? I mean, this this is heavy. And so we figured to be true to the words of Jesus, we wanted to rework our, our church mission statement and slogan. And so we came up with a new one that's really going to attract people. First Baptist Church, deny yourself and die. It's going to be wildly popular. People are going to love it. People are going to flock to us from all over the region. No, I'm just kidding. We're not, that's not actually going to be our slogan. 
our mission statement. But it makes you think, right? This is the invitation of Jesus is come and deny yourself and die. And it makes you wonder about the invitations that we make today or the way that we have a tendency to maybe set the bar pretty low and say, hey, it's, it's not going to cost you much. Just like, you know, come on in. We got comfortable chairs and nice coffee and we'll have the heater on and the pastor will tell jokes for a little bit. It's going to be a short service and then you can go out with your life and that's all we're going to ask of you. It won't cost you much. Jesus isn't going to ruffle your feathers too much. Don't worry. But man, when we see this, it's like, no, Jesus says, you know what? It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost your entire life. It's going to be a total 180 from the way you're doing things. He says, but it's worth it. And so we have to wonder, okay, what does it mean, Jesus, to deny yourself? Anyone comes after me must deny themselves. It seems to mean letting go of self-determination, letting go of the place of privilege where you decide how your life is going to go. Letting go of being the key decision maker in your life, of sitting on the throne of your heart. Saying, no, if you're going to follow me, you have to say no to your agenda, to your personal ambitions and dreams, and you have to align your life with me. You have to pursue my purposes. And so when you make decisions, it's no longer, okay, what do I want with my time and my money and my career or whatever? What, what do I want? No, it's, Lord, what do you want? Die to self to follow Christ, Lord, what do you want me to do? As I was preparing for this week, I was struck by this quote from this pitcher. His name was Tom Seaver. He's a MLB Hall of Famer. This comes from this book named Grit that my wife was reading, and she shared this with me this week, and it was so perfect. He's this pitcher, and he's explaining his career after he'd retired. He explains his sole focus and goal in life was to be a great pitcher. And he says this, my goal was to be the best, or excuse me, to pitch the best I possibly could day after day, year after year. And he said it took sacrifices. He said, pitching determined what I ate, when I went to bed, what I do when I'm awake. It determines how I spend my life when I'm not pitching. If it means that when I go to Florida, I can't get a tan because I might get a burn on my skin that would keep me from pitching, well, then I don't go shirtless in the sun. If it means I have to remind myself to pet dogs with my left hand or throw logs on the fire with my left hand so that my good hand can still pitch, then I do that. If it means in the wintertime I eat cottage cheese instead of chocolate chip cookies in order to keep my weight down, then I eat cottage cheese. He said, pitching is what makes me happy. I've devoted my life to it. He says, I've made up my mind what I want to do. I'm happy when I pitch well, and so I only do things that make me happy. There's plenty we could say about that quote and his philosophy there, but you see his, his focus is clear. Above all else, I want to be a great pitcher. And so everything in my life aligns with that. And so I'm going to sacrifice whatever it takes, whatever I need to do to keep me in shape, to keep me healthy, to keep me able to pitch. I'm going to do that. I'm going to say no to things that I even want to do at times so that I can be a good pitcher. 
And so if that's the way that he approaches his career, his job, how much greater should our commitment be to the Lord? Say, God, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to deny myself whatever I need to do in order to be faithful to you and to the call that you've put on my life. I'm going to deny myself. It says to take up your cross. It's an interesting language. See, in the ancient world, a criminal would carry their cross beam out to their place of execution. So the horizontal part of the cross, that wooden beam, the criminal would have to carry that to the place where they would die. And as they were carrying that cross beam, it was a public spectacle. They were shamed and insulted and spit on and yelled at by the public crowds that would jeer at them. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and you have to take your cross. You have to be willing to be publicly humiliated for me. You have to be willing to be insulted for me. You have to be willing to, to go to your death, if it requires it, in order to follow me. This would be a very real situation for the first century audience reading the Gospel of Mark. Many of them would be persecuted. Many parts of the world today, believers are persecuted and could lose their lives merely for professing faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, they have to be willing to go this far. And his words here are just so counterintuitive as he continues, aren't they? It sounds backwards. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Saying, in order to live, you have to die, and in order to gain, you have to lose. It sounds so very backwards. And he reinforces it as he goes on in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so he asks two rhetorical questions. First, verse 36, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? In the end, the answer, no good. It's no good. To have all your desires fulfilled, all your earthly goals reached, but when you get to the end of your life, you realize you've missed the whole point of it all. You forfeited your eternity and your very soul. Be no good to do that. And then verse 37, another rhetorical question. What can you give in exchange for your soul? Or in other words, what is as valuable as your soul? What could you possibly trade for your soul and have it be a, a worthwhile trade? It's like nothing. What's as valuable as your soul? Nothing. What do you possibly exchange it for? Nothing. There's nothing as valuable. And so Jesus is saying you should be more concerned about your soul, about your life, about your eternity. That should be more of a concern for you than any kind of temporary, earthly focus that you may have. And so Jesus is very clearly here putting before us two paths, two ways to approach life and eternity. Option one, he says, try to save your life. Gain the world. Pursue your dreams, your own selfish ambitions. Indulge yourself. He says, go that way and you may gain earthly, temporary satisfaction. You may gain the world. I remember I posted this verse on Facebook a couple of years ago. Whoever, you know, uh, verse 36. 
specifically? You know, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I put that on Facebook just as a post. I was reading it at the time, and my friend commented. Not a Christian uh, guy, but just a good friend of mine. And he commented on there in all caps, You gain the world. All caps. You gain the world. Like, Matt, what are you talking about? You get everything. You get the world. You get all everything you could ever want in this life. Don't, don't you get it? He's like, you get the world. You get all that you could possibly want. Jesus says, yeah, that, that may be true. You might go that way. You might find this kind of satisfaction now. He said, you forfeit your soul, your eternity, your life with God. You miss what life is truly about, and that's knowing the Lord. So he says, option number two then, lose your life for the sake of Christ. Give your life away. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Make sacrifices now. Prioritize God and his kingdom now. And you notice, he's not just saying, like, be a generous person, like, in, in some kind of vague way, like, just, just give more. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so just, you know, if you give more, you'll be happy. That's not exactly what he's saying. You notice he's saying, give your life away for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So he's not talking in vague generosity terms. He's saying, no, I want you to give your life away. Lay your life down for me and for the kingdom of God and for my purposes and my plans for your life, the cause of the gospel. And so we read this and we're like, man, this is heavy. I mean, really, this, Jesus is requiring quite a lot of us. This is a pretty big invitation with some pretty serious implications for our lives. And so we think, why in the world would we do this? Such sacrifice, such loss, self-denial. He says, if you go that way, if you take the second path, that's where true life is found. That's where you're going to find me. That's where you're going to find true joy. That's where you're going to find true purpose and meaning and eternity and the presence of God. See, we all want to be happy. I mean, I think it's a pretty universal thing. We want to find joy and meaning in life. And Jesus is saying, okay, here's how. Here's how you do that. It might be counterintuitive, but here's the way. And so the reality is we all have to make this decision with what we're going to do with the gospel. When we hear the gospel message, I mean, it requires a response. And for us to respond to the gospel, it requires a bit of death, if you think about it. It requires a, a denial of self because at the very heart of the message of the gospel is this humiliating reality that we're helpless lost. I mean, we're, we're sinful. We, we could not save ourselves. There was nothing that we could do to get ourselves out of this mess that we created. So don't you see if we accept the gospel, the fact that we needed to be rescued, we were helpless, that there's no room for pride there. There's no room for self-sufficiency there's no room for ego. Man, if we receive the gospel, 
that in itself is dying to self, is recognizing, yes, Lord, I was lost and helpless and broken and I needed you to save me. I want to acknowledge my complete dependence on you. I'm going to die to self-reliance. I'm going to die to pride. I'm going to die to self-sufficiency. You see, in all of this, Jesus is just trying to help us have an eternal perspective. To look beyond just the temporary concerns that so often fill up our minds. And you see him go there in the final verse that we're looking at, verse 38, the bigger picture. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He's saying, think, if you could, just beyond the temporary day in, day out life that you're leading. Look to the future where one day Jesus will return in all the glory of God, there will come a day when we all will stand before that God and give an account of our lives. And Jesus is saying on that day, if you've been ashamed of him and wanted nothing to do with him and rejected him and said, Jesus, we want to live for ourselves. Thank you very much. He says on that day, then I will be ashamed of you. And there will be separation there. But the opposite is true then. If we receive Jesus, if we say yes to him and put our faith in him and die to ourselves, then when he comes that day, we'll be found in him. He will receive us and welcome us and we'll be a part of his family forever. And so it really boils down to this question for us today. We're all going to have to decide one, what we're going to do with the gospel. Will we respond to the good news of Jesus and put our faith in him? Will we die to our pride, die to self and trust him? And the second piece is if we say yes to that and if we're walking with the Lord, there are going to come times in our lives, probably over and over again, where we're going to have to choose. We're going to have to decide. How will we live? How will we spend our money, the resources that we have been given, how will we spend them? How will we spend our time that we've been given? We're going to have to make decisions that are going to affect our health, that are going to affect our families. We're going to have to make decisions that will affect our reputations. In certain situations, we're going to have to decide, do we stay? Do we dig in? Do we pour ourselves into more of this or do we leave? Do we go? Do we get out of this bad situation? We might have to give up dreams. We might have to change our ambitions and the focus of our lives. We might have to make hard choices and sacrifices and this could look a, a zillion different ways. So I don't know what this exactly will mean for you, but chances are you'll know that there'll be some uh, work of God in your heart that's prompting you, saying now is the time, or there's something that you have to give up, there's something that you have to do, and you can't quite get rid of it. And those moments we'll have to choose. Will we give our lives away for the sake of the gospel? Will we deny ourselves in order to say yes to Jesus and what he has for us? And so again, maybe you're here today and there's something that the Lord is asking you to give up for him. And I don't know what that is. 
There's a bit of extra money that you're holding on to. He's asking you to trust him with your finances, but you're holding back. Maybe there's a dream you're pursuing that God's calling you to lay down for him. Maybe there's a relationship you're in that you frankly don't need to be in and shouldn't be in. Maybe there's a possession that you can't seem to let go of. Maybe there's a a night of your week or some of your free time that you're not willing to give away to serve or love, love others or be on mission with God. I don't know what it is, but Jesus is saying, give it away. Give it away. Let it go. And if you do, you'll find true life in me. You have to die to live. You have to lose to gain. He's saying it might look foolish. It might look like weakness and sacrifice, and it might feel like you're missing out. It may feel radical, but at the end, you will find a joy, a fullness of life in me that you never could have experienced had you held on to that so tightly, whatever it is that you're holding on to. Missionary Jim Elliott put it this way, maybe you know this quote, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so the question for us is, what is Jesus asking us to give away, to die to, to lay down for him so that we can prioritize his purposes and experience the fullness of life that he alone can offer. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a, a heavy truth we've considered this morning. Jesus, the cost of following you. We thank you for dying for our sins, for saving us, for doing everything that was required for salvation if we would trust in you. We thank you for that and we pray that you would give us the courage and the determination and the faith to respond to you and give you our very lives. I pray, God, that you would point out to each of us in our hearts what it is that you're calling us to, what changes you would have us make, But we thank you, Jesus, for the gospel, that you save us, that you died for us, and that you love us and welcome us into your family. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.